Well, we're currently working our way through Luke's account of the life of Jesus, and we've arrived at a point in Luke's whole story where Jesus is slap bang in the midst of a whole series of incidents where he's very much under attack. It's as though uh, one of the things that uh, Luke seems to be at pains to highlight is that as the whole ministry of Jesus develops, so the opposition increases. That's how it was back then. Uh, It's very much the same today as uh, the kingdom uh, of God advances, as we do the work of Jesus, uh, there's a whole lot of opposition uh, at the same time. Now, if you're around a couple of weeks back, uh, you'll remember that we honed in on two specific ways in which Jesus was attacked. First of all, in Luke 11 verse 15, uh, Jesus was accused of being a messenger of Satan, uh, and then later on in that passage in verse 6, uh, other people started demanding that he produce some kind of sign from heaven for them. Now, I, I don't know what you think, but I reckon this whole demand for a sign is pretty common in our day and age as well. Uh, you hear people saying, well, seeing is believing. It's like, if you can prove it to me, then I'll accept it. If I can see it with my own eyes, then I'll receive it. But the reality is, you can't ever fully prove the existence of God. At the end of the day, no evidence of that kind is ever quite enough for people. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Of course, there are arguments And there are plenty of evidences for the existence of God, but there can't ever be absolute proof. You see, if you could simply prove God through the processes of your mind, the God you'd end up with would be smaller than your intellect. And so the whole word God would be emptied of something of its meaning and its power and its authority. Faith would become redundant. And so before we become too immersed in our culture's way of thinking, which is simply a way of restating uh, the way people have thought for centuries and centuries and centuries. Before we give way to the argument that seeing is believing, I want us to recognize right at the outset that the New Testament teaches that it's more a case of believing is seeing. It's not that we need to believe against the evidence, because that would be intellectual suicide, not talking about that, But that as you look at the evidence, as you look at the person of Jesus Christ and all the claims that he made, as you weigh it all up, if you find that the evidence points in the direction of this man, Jesus, being who he claimed to be, then please don't refuse to believe. Because it's in the whole act and process of believing that you will come to see and be certain. Now that's very much the point that Jesus is going to be making in today's passage. Really, all I want to do today is ask two very simple questions of these verses that we're about to read together. The question number one in verses 29 to 32 of Luke 11, why no sign? And then in verses 32 to 36, why no light? So I'm going to keep it very simple today. Two simple questions that I think open up the teaching that Jesus is giving us here. Let's pick it up in verse 29. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, he said, this evil generation 
keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. So question number one, why no sign? It's like, if God is really there, if God is powerful and loving, if he really does care for us, why doesn't he show himself to us? It's a very common statement. If God's real, why doesn't he come and show us so that we can all understand? And that's exactly the same thing that people were saying when Jesus came and walked this earth. They demanded a sign. They wanted more evidence. But Luke tells us in verse 29 that as the crowds pressed in on Jesus, he chose that precise moment to warn them that if they're looking for more signs, then they're pretty much wasting their time. If you've come expecting some kind of divine firework display, then forget it. And he continues, if that's your attitude, you're part of what he calls this evil generation. Now, what makes them evil? I mean, that sounds ever so slightly controversial, slightly harsh, doesn't it? Well, whenever you read the Bible, you you must always try and interpret it in context. And so if you were to go back just two verses, uh, you find a woman in the crowd calling out to Jesus, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And note Jesus' response. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus is saying he doesn't want compliments. He doesn't want to be respected or well thought of. He wants people who respond to God's Word. That means hearing it and obeying it. Whatever we might say about Jesus, whatever we sing about Him in our worship songs, however He might move us in the moment, is only ever empty sentiment if it's not also accompanied by obedience. And so the evil that Jesus is talking about here stems from people's refusal to hear and obey God's word in Christ. Now, of course, these people had many signposts. As we've been slowly working our way through Luke's gospel, we've seen sign after sign after sign that demonstrated his divine power. He's able to raise the sick with just one word. He can not only raise the sick, he can also raise the dead to life. He can still storms, he can make the blind see and the dumb speak. All of these miracles point to the divine authority of Jesus. But despite all of this, the crowd still isn't satisfied. They still want something more. All all the time, they're rejecting Jesus' words and the incredible works that he's done among them. It's not that there was a shortage of evidence. It's just they would not believe. Listen, the person and work of Christ is always enough 
for us to put our confidence, for us to put our certainty in Him. But there's always enough uncertainty for us to refuse to believe if that's what we're really set on. Because ultimately, unbelief is an attitude of will. And so Jesus here confronts the crowds because he won't just go with their whim and fancy and give them a few more miraculous signs to entertain them when they've already decided to reject him. And then Jesus, maybe slightly confusingly, draws a comparison with Jonah. If you remember, Jonah in the Old Testament was sent by God to call the people of Nineveh to repent. And that's, in a sense, what Jesus was doing. He was calling people to turn from living their way and follow God's way. Now, the reason that people responded in faith to Jonah was that he was in himself a living testimony to the power of God to deliver from death. And this is the supreme sign that is going to be given to these Jews as well. Notice the future tense that Jesus uses here. Jesus says that what happens to him will be a sign. It hasn't yet come. Time isn't quite now, but it will come. It will happen, he says. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the big fish and was then vomited up onto the land to preach repentance to the people, so Jesus was going to die and be buried before rising again on the third day to call all nations to repentance and faith. Ultimately, Jesus will demonstrate that he is the saviour of the whole world through his resurrection from the dead. But even the sign of Jonah, this resurrection, this coming out uh, from darkness into light, this resurrection can't create faith if our hearts are set on unbelief. Because at root, unbelief isn't ignorance of the facts. Classical historian and lawyer Professor Norman Anderson described the resurrection of Jesus Christ as one of the best attested facts of history. He says in his book on the resurrection of Jesus, there's no shortage of evidence for the resurrection if you're willing to examine it carefully and look into, study the historical accounts and think of the impact it made on the ancient world and consider the spread down through the centuries of the Christian church. There is plenty of evidence if you're willing to look into it. But many people don't. They simply refuse to believe. At the end of the day, unbelief isn't so much ignorance of the facts, it's a stubborn refusal to let God be God. I think that's the evil that Jesus is talking about here. The wickedness of their generation and ours. It's a rebellion in the face of the evidence that's the root of sin. And so in verse 31, Jesus introduces another illustration, another example. He says, the Queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. 
If you're interested, you can read the whole story in the Old Testament. The Queen of Sheba came to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and was amazed by what she heard. As a result, she gave glory to God, whom she recognized as the source of all of this wisdom. And Jesus says that on the day of judgment, this Gentile woman, whom the Jews would have absolutely despised, she will stand up and condemn the religious leaders because her behavior will convict them of their unbelief. It's as though her good example shows up their evil hearts for what they really are. I mean, one even greater than Solomon was among them, Jesus, and yet they dismissed him. They refused to listen to him. And then Jesus returns again to the example of Jonah, verse 32, the people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. As we read these verses, I don't want you to miss Jesus' definition of goodness and evil. The Ninevites were a godless, sinful people, but they heard the word of God and they obeyed it. Therefore, they were blessed. They ended up being the good guys. But they responded in repentance, cast themselves on God's mercy, and they found his forgiveness. But these Jewish religious leaders here, they heard the word of God, hardened their hearts against it, and that is evil in God's eyes. He knows and we know that we're all sinners. All of us fall short of the standard of God, that however good we've lived, none of us can appear in God's presence with any confidence whatsoever because of the sin in our lives. But God's prepared to forgive us if we ask him. We can come to him with confidence if we depend on what Jesus has done for us. What he cannot deal with is the person who refuses to come, the person who hears the word of God and resists it. So I want us to realize today, really more than anything else, that the privilege of hearing the word of God, that the privilege of having it here in our hands, in our own language, of having freedom to meet together like we are today. This is a great privilege, but it also brings with it an equivalent responsibility. What are you doing with what you hear? What are you doing with what you hear? I think it would be foolish to think that we'll fare any better than these Jews in this passage if we harden our hearts against God's truth. You know, it's not for want of signs that our generation will be condemned. Plenty of signs, plenty of evidence for the existence of God, the truth of the gospel all around us. It's the hardness of heart that refuses to let God be God and refuses to believe in him. You can't say to God, you you never zapped me with some supernatural experience, so how could I ever believe in you? Because he will simply turn around and say to you, yeah, but 
What have you done with what you've heard? Now, of course, passage we're looking at, specific words to specific people in a moment in history. But that being said, just think how they're multiplied for us here in the 21st century. The New Testament, which we have and they didn't have, is packed full of evidence for faith. What's more, we have the benefit of living this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. The last two millennia is the ongoing, unfolding story of the transforming power of God on millions and millions and millions of lives. To ignore all of that and not be concerned to at least follow it up and look into it some more is surely to condemn ourselves. There is a very real warning here that I think would be crazy to ignore. What are you doing with what you hear? But the challenge doesn't end there. Because as we read on in verses 33 to 36, Jesus takes his analysis deeper still. And he goes on to show us why it is that people demand a sign and yet continue to be so blind to his reality. If the first question is, why no sign? The second question is, why no light? Verse 33, Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. In other words, for light to do its work, you have to be able to see it. The whole purpose of a lamp is to give light. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to hide it away where it can't be seen. Now just to say, Jesus here isn't refusing to give a sign because he wants to in some way hide his light. He's not refusing because he wants his message to be obscure. Elsewhere, he declares himself to be the light of the world. He came to reveal, to demonstrate God's heart of love and mercy and grace. He he came to teach God's truth. He came to bring people into relationship with God himself. So there is no shortage of light going on here. Jesus is there, as it were, on the stand, burning brightly for all to see. I've got to read the pages of the Gospels to see that. That's how we see the light today. We read the Gospels, and sooner or later have to answer the question, what do I make of this person Jesus? How do I account for his remarkable power and authority? What's the explanation for his extraordinary teaching? What do I make of him? That's the light shining. So why don't people believe? Well, look at verse 34. Jesus says, Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is bad, your body is filled with darkness. So really, the the problem isn't the source of the light. It's the person on the receiving end. 
It's all very well there being a bright light shining, but if you insist all the time on closing your eyes, you're never ever going to benefit from it. However much light there is around you, you are going to stay in darkness. However much evidence Jesus provides, those who deliberately keep their eyes closed will remain in the dark. And so Jesus warns us in verse 35, make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. In other words, please look very, very carefully. If your eyes are distorted or unhealthy, you might think all the time you're living in the light, but in fact, all the time you are actually groping around in darkness. Jesus is saying to them, your view of things, the judgments that you have come to, what you see and what you think, your assessment of me is actually darkness. All the time you imagine you're seeing when in fact you're walking in the dark. You think your life is going great, but all the time you're spiritually blind. Jesus is challenging us to ask the question, is my spiritual eyesight healthy or unhealthy? And the test is this, do you receive the light of Christ or do you reject it? As you listen to what he teaches, do you all the time submit to God's authority? Because if you reject that, you condemn yourself to live in the dark. But it doesn't have to be like that. Verse 36, if you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. Here's the person who positively responds to the light of Jesus. What happens? Their whole being is affected. It's impacted deeply. His light shines through every area of their lives, their desires, their emotions, their motivations, their mind. Every bit of them is exposed to the light of Jesus, the truth of who he is, what he says, what he does. And it enables them, it frees them, releases them to see things clearly. And Jesus says that for people like that, actually there's no need for more signs from heaven. Because they already have the inward reality of the light of Christ shining more and more clearly in them. And so as I start to wrap all of this up, I want to encourage you to watch your response to Jesus. If we persist in rejecting him, we'll become increasingly hard and darkened spiritually. I meet people, it's tragic, who were on fire for him a few years back, who are now completely switched off So over time, they've just made this series of decisions to ignore what he says. They're so far in the darkness that they don't even realize it any longer. When Jesus says, make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness, he's addressing religious people, he's addressing spiritual people, people who assume they were in the light. 
It's a warning we all need to heed. How do we do that positively? Well, it means to hear the word of God and obey it. It's the message of this passage, that the light of God in Christ is continually shining into our lives. He highlights selfishness and greed. He highlights pride and envy and unforgiveness and deceit, all those sins that still lurk in so many of our lives. He shows them up so we can deal with them, so we can repent and live in the light. All the time, how we react is the crucial thing. Do we hear but do nothing with it? Do do we pick and choose what we want to apply? Or do we actively look for God to speak to us through his word? Do we obey him? Do we say, yep, that, that is sin, that's wrong. Please forgive me. Help me to turn from those things. Do we submit to his word as the final absolute authority in our lives? If we do, it's like our whole lives are full of light. We radiate with the goodness and glory of God. Just think about it. Isn't it true that the parts of your life that perhaps you wish you could erase, the memories that maybe you wish you could scrub out, the relationships you wish never happened, isn't it true that most of that could have been avoided in your life if you'd simply obeyed God's word, if in the moment you'd done what he says. Isn't it true you wouldn't have got involved in some relationships or some business practices if you'd not only been a hearer, but an obeyer, a doer as well? If you hadn't said, yeah, I know what it says, but... Yeah, I know it's probably true, but I'm going to do it my way anyway. Isn't it true that we could erase most of the mistakes in our lives if a year, two years, five years, 20 years ago, we'd simply done what God's Word teaches? Most of us would be in a better place today if we'd be more serious about doing what God said to us in the past. So here's what I believe God would say to you today. Would you just trust me from this point on? Would you just trust me, obey my word from this point on? I know it's hard to get out of a relationship. I know it's hard to stay in a relationship. I know it's hard to to go to work and take responsibility for what happened. I know it's hard to apologize. I know it's hard to forgive. I know it's hard to try and put things right when other people don't understand. I know it's hard to give. I know it's hard to remain faithful. I know it's hard to tell your friends you can't do that anymore. I know it's hard to admit that maybe you've been a lousy dad or mum and put in the effort to change. I know it's hard carving out the time to read God's Word on a daily basis. But I'm telling you, if you move from simply hearing the Word of God to actually obeying it, you will be blessed. You really will be. And so the question is, would you be willing this morning to act on all of this? For you, where you are, to take the next step. Maybe that means becoming a follower of Jesus. You've been holding out for more evidence, for more proof, but the reality is you already know enough to go on. 
If you're here today just kind of sitting on the fence, won't you believe? And in believing, then you'll see. Or perhaps you feel, no, I still can't do that. Maybe you need to resolve to seriously look into it some more. It's great you're here. Keep coming. There are loads of people here who'd love to help you in your exploration of who is Jesus? What's the relevance of his death? Did he really rise from the dead? How does that impact our lives today? We'd love to help you on that journey. Or maybe you'd say you are a follower of Jesus. But all the time you know that there are areas in your life where you haven't been doing what he says. Perhaps even as I've been speaking, God's been convicting you about specific things in your life where you're ignoring him. The message of Jesus to you today is repent. Turn from those things today. Maybe the next step for you is simply resolving to be more intentional about getting to grips with God's Word. Actually, you just need to pick it up and read it. I don't know what the next step is for you. It's going to be different for all of us. I just want to give you a moment now to reflect on what you've heard and for you where you're at to consider what your response is going to be. If Jesus says it's not enough just to hear the Word, what are you going to do about what you've just heard? Just reflect on that for a few moments. If you are old-fashioned, you have a notebook and pen, just write some stuff down. Maybe you've got a phone with you, get it out. Don't start texting people, but just put some notes on it. Okay, what does this mean for you? What are you going to do as a result of this? Then in a few moments, Russ will get up and uh, move the meeting on. Great, just reflect for a few moments, though.